course, in January, <laughs> nobody thought we were going to be where we are now. Nobody thought we're going to be in sort of a national lockdown or even international lockdown um, come come March. We entered lockdown and realised that the restaurant was no longer going to support the farm. And we had to make some quick changes and work out a way to flip those roles on their head. We literally shut down overnight. I think for a while it was sort of stunned. I still actually struggle to believe it tangibly or really what's just happened. A lot of people were losing the breadwinner and were really struggling and coming to me and saying, Ursula, I've got no food, I can't feed my kids. There is a lot of grief that is on pause. I've had people say to me, listen, Ursula, my husband left the house or my son left the house in an ambulance. So, you know, I could only speak to them on the phone through a nurse. And then the next thing I know, they're telling me that that coffin over there has my son or has my husband in there. I'm not accepting that because I didn't go through the rites or the rituals. I didn't get to kiss him goodbye. I didn't get to hold his hand. I didn't get to comb his hair. Who Feeds Us? From Farmerama. Episode 1, The Hungry Gap. This series is a chorus of voices from people across the British Isles, people on the land and the seas, on allotments and city roofs, the stories of farmers, growers, community leaders, healers, chefs, beekeepers, fishers, and others. This is Who Feeds Us? As the COVID-19 lockdown hit the UK in early 2020, our nation suddenly looked very different. Supermarket shelves were empty, and for the first time in most people's lives, we started to question how we were going to feed ourselves and our families. Almost overnight, localised food systems went from being niche fantasies to a vital source of sustenance for many people around the country. One thing this pandemic has made clear is that food doesn't come from supermarket shelves. It never did. Food comes from the soil, the sea, and the hands of people. In this series, we hear from those people, people who stepped up back in March to feed the nation, who are still feeding us today, and who we're all relying on to feed us in the future. This is a celebration of these key workers, a thank you, and a call to action, so we don't forget just how key they are. I'm Katie Revel, one of the producers of Farmerama. There's something else I'd like you to know about this series. It's the result of contributions from a huge number of different people, 23 in total. We worked with six audio producers, as well as six community collaborators from across the UK. These community collaborators highlighted stories from within their communities, and it's these stories that we'll be sharing with you throughout the series. You'll also find a collection of additional stories on our blog. We've taken this approach because we want you to hear stories from the ground, literally and figuratively. Amidst the dramatic headlines and apocalyptic news footage, as we all stockpiled flour and tinned tomatoes, 
what was really happening on our farms and market gardens, in our dairies and bakeries, in our food banks and community kitchens? Who are the people who baked that loaf of bread, delivered that milk and harvested those vegetables? In the words of one of our community collaborators, Highlands-based farmer Col Gordon. Food is, is something that connects everyone more than just about anything else. You, everyone, everyone, has to, everyone has to eat. Getting to know someone you get your food from is really a massive part of hopefully what's come out of this. And I think there's a lot of people who maybe have, have done that for possibly the first time. They felt that, that the farmer has become something or the food producer has sort of returned to being something that is important within a community as opposed to someone who, who just does something that gets put in the back of a truck and off it goes somewhere else. By getting to know our food producers, we can make a big difference in terms of what everywhere looks like because you're, you're looking at somewhere uh, as opposed to anywhere. In this first episode, we'll hear four stories from four very different corners of the food system. From people supplying high-end restaurants to people on the front lines of emergency food provision. They've all been profoundly affected by the crisis and they've all responded in creative ways to sustain themselves and their communities. In this episode, they share their experience of the crisis so far. We'll be meeting each of them again in the final episode to hear their visions for the future. We begin with a farmer and a chef who have an especially close partnership. My name is Jane Scotter. I am a biodynamic farmer at my farm called Fernborough, which is in Herefordshire, which is on the Welsh-English border in the west of England. I grow vegetables, fruit and flowers for Sky's Restaurant Spring in London and have been doing that for the past six years. I'm Sky Gingell and I'm a... Uh, I guess people call me a chef, but I feel much more comfortable with the word cook. And I have a restaurant in London called Spring. And I also work, um, as does Jane, actually, with a um, hotel in Hampshire that also Jane's in the process of converting to a biodynamic farm. So we work on that project together as well. Well, I've been taking my produce to London for quite a long time before I met Sky was selling at Borough Market and then at Maltby Street and I think uh, perhaps Sky had visited, knew about the vegetables and just out of the blue she wrote to me one day, this was probably in about June 2015, that she was opening a restaurant in October of that year and uh, she was looking for a farm to work with and would we be interested and it was exactly what we had in mind, I sort of, yeah, it fell out of the sky really, it's lovely. It was 2014, Jane. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, it's our sixth year working together. We're coming to the end of our sixth year. I'd always sort of known about these kind of relationships that certain restaurants had with farms, like a really intimate, very personal relationship. It's kind of like a marriage. And over the years, we've had a few disagreements because there was so much to iron out, especially in the beginning. And, you know, we had to learn to trust each other, didn't we? I make money and I'm able to do it in the way that I want to do it by working with yeah. Sky. I mean, I, I know I've said this before to you, Jane, and I genuinely mean this. I don't think I could work without Jane any longer. And I don't really know where her work 
finishes and mine begins. There's absolutely as much and sometimes a lot more actually of Jane's work on that plate than there is mine. I'm very inspired by seeing the plates because they're they're doing exactly what I would like to have done with my with the food that I grow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Often I taste something and then it's like a memory and then I search for that for later. And I think with just growing it, I knew I'd find that. I mean, certainly did with potatoes, you know. Um, I remember tasting potatoes as a child and I really liked them. And then just my early adult life, never finding anything that would ever taste like that again. It was the will and the want, you know, the wanting to get it right and appreciating the variety and the richness that, um, that it brings. It's always felt really right being in a kitchen and being around food. I mean, I think I love it probably more now than I did in the beginning. It, it's, it's been something that's never, I've never tired of. And actually, I think that's, um, our relationship is so lovely because it really, it's opened up a whole new kind of vista for me, actually, mm -hmm. and way of cooking, which has kind of completely re-inspired me in the last few years. Spontaneity as well of the seasons, you know. And... Just the pure beauty of the whole thing yeah. is just completely mesmerizing. For me, I always know that Sky always has my interests at heart, and and when I'm growing the food or harvesting, then that's how I feel about picking it and making sure it's the best I can do for her, so that her business thrives and um, we can always do this. Yeah, we've got each other's backs, that's for sure. Definitely. And then coronavirus hit, and virtually overnight the UK's restaurant industry shut down. I think it was March the 14th that we closed. I think that was the, the day, if I'm correct, that you know Boris Johnson made that statement where it was nobody go to clubs, pubs, restaurants anymore, but he hadn't actually officially closed them down. And I think from the moment that that happened, it was really obvious that you could no longer continue you know, to run and open the restaurant. And so we literally shut down within two days of that happening. And then uh, I think for a while it was sort of stunned. Like, it wasn't, I mean, it was just like, you know, I, don't, I think the comprehension of what was happening um, was just, I still actually struggle to believe it tangibly or really what's just happened. I was incredibly aware of all the people that also, it's not just us and, you know, the kind of 58 people that worked at Spring. It was also Jane and the farm. And so we kind of reinvented ourselves very quickly, didn't we, Jane? And we, we opened a shop. Yeah, within a week. Made a website. <laughs> yeah, made a Shopify account. Yeah. Um, sold Jane's veg boxes, um, learnt to pack boxes, learnt to do deliveries. And then, and, and at the same time, we added, you know, stuff that Spring does, all our breads, the butters we make, liqueurs, jams, cordials. And we're actually still doing that. So we've been doing that for six months now. But lockdown came into effect just as the UK was entering its least plentiful growing season. I was doing a little box scheme sort of with the overflow of produce myself anyway before, but then suddenly it went absolutely mad. And, you know, it was a bad time, really. It was a time that we had very little. So we were really scratching around and um, we sold out of everything within five weeks, I suppose. Then, of course, you know, 
that season had ended and um, everything was going into the ground but wasn't um, big enough yet. So we had about a five-week slot where there was very, very little to sell. You know, if it had happened in July, we'd have, you know, been laughing. But uh, so that, that sort of, you know, stopped us in our tracks a bit. When the coronavirus came and people really wanted fruit and veg, it was also in what's known as the hunger gap. It was a time that there is little. And then, and also getting people to try and understand, they go, I really like your box of fruit and vegetables, but actually I really would like to see a potato or this or that. And you go, okay, but if you want to eat seasonally and you want to buy locally, they aren't here. People think of spring and they think, oh my gosh, the winter's over. And the winter's actually a very deep and rich kind of tapestry of, I, it's one of my favorite seasons, actually, I have to say. I, in fact, I think it is my favorite growing season because I, I love what comes and, and the flavors that come from the winter are so kind of nutty and sweet and crinkly and irony and like delicious. But, um, but I think people see spring and they go, oh God, there must be loads of stuff. And actually spring is probably the most fallow time of the whole year, isn't it? It's when you clear the land and replant. Nothing will come until the middle of June. Um, it has to grow. I feel like people wanted to make a connection, make some sense of something real. They probably thought that they really had time to cook because life had stopped in a different way. And they were treating themselves a bit too, weren't they, at the beginning? I think people were buying lots of nice things to... Cheer them up, selves up, yeah. We really noticed that people were buying so many cakes and we sell this cookie dough. Like we couldn't make enough cookie dough and jams and ice buns and biscuits and cordials and ice creams. We just couldn't make enough ice cream, really. Can I, can I be really dreadful? I've got a pan on and I think it might be burning. Oh, just, no, no, geez, no, go and on. check it, yeah. We'll hear more about how Sky and Jane have adapted as well as their thoughts on the future of our food system later in the series. Angus Buchanan-Smith grew up in Scotland on his family's dairy farm. He trained as a graphic designer before returning to the farm five years ago. We're a little farm based just outside Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, we're set at the foot of the Pentland Hills. So I'm in the office right now, but looking across the farm... Um, we've got about, it's actually 400 acres of grassland here. Um, and we're only actively farming about 10 acres, roughly. For the last um, about 100 years, my, my family has been based on this, on this ground. And it's always traditionally been dairying. Because of the weather here and because of the altitude, we grow really good grass. But unfortunately, the turn of the century... There was a bit of a bit of a dairy crisis, and my parents just weren't able to to make it stack up. And it was unfortunately shortly before uh, they had invested largely in in a new a new milking parlour. For many years, they were really unsure about what else should happen here, and they undenied, and they they had a lot of debt to look after, and they were just kind of concerned about what was going to happen. And that's that's kind of when me and my brother and and actually some really good friends stepped in and we were like, wait a minute, surely there's something else we can do here to to preserve the farm and give it a new new lease of life. Once we started talking about the possibility of actually taking over and having a bit more responsibility, it all started to line up and make make sense. And 
yeah, re just really thrilled to still be here today and to, to see the farm. You know, it's, it's running in a very different way, but to, to, still, to still be here and, 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 you know, I think there's a legacy there that I feel very proud to be part of. Back in 2015, myself, my brother and a few friends identified that there was basically another dairy crisis and we thought, what can we do to, to basically help some of these farmers that were struggling? So long story short, we travelled in the UK hosting dinners on farms and the idea was to generate more awareness about the importance of supporting local small-scale farmers, uh, primarily dairy farmers. But whilst doing this, we realised that it wasn't just the dairy farmers that were struggling, that they were basically all farmers, small scale across the board, were, were struggling in different ways. So we came back to the farm and set up a way to host dinners from the farm and, and spread the same message. Angus and his friends set up The Free Company, a project that's grown from a seasonal farm-to-table restaurant to include a community-supported agriculture scheme, or a veg club, and soon a centre for rural learning. So that's basically what we did. We did a very minimal renovation on one of the old barns here, created this beautiful dining room with these guys and started, started cooking these meals. And it was, we knew that we could grow a certain amount of food ourselves. So we've always had the garden that supported the restaurant. It basically allowed us to pop up for a short period of time, generate a whole lot of buzz about what we were doing, about the seasonality of, of produce at that time, get people in and then uh, tell the story about the produce, where it's come from, how it's grown, and also highlight other, other uh, suppliers and local farmers that we were working with. So much of the food that we grow, it all goes straight into the restaurant. And the way it works is our guests can arrive and they can walk around the garden and we'll serve them some little snacks or canapes and they can see exactly where everything's coming from. And then when they sit down in the dining room, we basically walk through each individual course and talk about why we're so excited to be you know, supporting a cheese supplier from the West Coast and getting our, um, you know, our butter from somewhere else or, or whatever it may be. And it's, it's basically creating a narrative and sharing the stories and sharing the, the important knowledge that's kind of rooted in where our food comes from. Back in March, we, we had received just under 3,000 reservations for the restaurant. And although we are a restaurant based on a farm, for the last four years, it has been the restaurant that has supported the farm and the creation of the restaurant that has kept everything afloat here. So when we, we, we entered lockdown and realised that the restaurant was no longer going to support the farm in that way, we had to, had to make some quick changes and work out a way to flip those roles on their head and, and, and work out a way for the farm to support the restaurant. With the restaurant forced to close, Angus and the Free Company team shifted their focus to growing for wholesale and their veg club. And so luckily being back in March and going into the spring and the warm weather, we were able to, to pivot and, and basically upscale the garden. We basically upscaled our production as much as we possibly could with the team that we had on board at that time in an effort to basically create a lifeline for us to get through the summer. And we're now looking at, you know, making sure this lifeline continues right through the winter until next year. We'll hear more about how the free company has been impacted by the crisis and Angus's response to it in the final episode of Who Feeds Us. Like many of the people featured in this series, Angus doesn't believe the pandemic has caused our food system to become dysfunctional. 
but it has heightened, amplified, and focused attention on existing problems. I would argue that our conventional supply chains are failing us. The fact that there are so few organic farmers out there is very problematic. The fact that we have, okay, yeah, we have, we have choice. We can buy vegetables from all over the world at any one point, whenever we like. But actually, we don't have choice for what's actually grown at our own doorstep. It's very hard to go into a conventional supermarket and say, I want to buy stuff that's actually grown within a 10-mile radius. It's impossible. Convenience has driven the food chain to be where it is today. Price and convenience. So that's something that's a very tall order to compete against. And the way that supermarkets are currently supplying food is, is extremely convenient at a very affordable price. The current global supply system is great at delivering food in a way that appears to be convenient and cheap, at least if all you're looking at is the till receipt. But what the pandemic has made clear is that it's a system that doesn't offer resilience in the face of crisis. Can we afford to be reliant on a system based on long, tenuous global supply chains and just-in-time delivery? On a system that lacks the flexibility to respond or adapt to unexpected events? As consumers, as eaters, we have grown further and further away from the people, the places and the natural systems that produce our food. Even like 25, 50 years ago, almost everyone had a connection to a farm in one way or another. You know, whether it was a great uncle or a grandfather or whatever, they used to live on a farm. I think that almost everyone had some kind of connection. You know, they would go there on their summer holidays or they would hear about their father going to, you know, do the hay harvest or whatever. I think I think that very much was the way of life in the UK for a long time. And until recently, and I think we've just re- we've recently arrived at the point where so many people just do not have any kind of connection to a farm. I think that there is just a... There is a divide, there is a massive divide between people's understandings of farms and foods and where their food comes from. Reconnecting with where our food comes from means forging stronger ties not just with farmers and other food producers, but also with the land itself and with the plants and animals that keep us fed and healthy. And that includes insects. Salma and Khalil Atan are beekeepers in East London. Their interest in beekeeping was sparked by a situation that will be familiar to many of us. Khalil used to have really bad hay fever and most of the summer it would be sort of a dripping nose and, you know, um, swollen eyes and it just looked like he'd been crying all the time. <laughs> it would be so bad that, you know, I couldn't go out of the house some days. It was, um, you know, debilitating almost for a day. We um, sort of found out that, oh, local honey might actually be helpful it might be one of these things that helps towards hay fever and this was sort of about 12 13 years ago we're talking about so we were looking for um, local honey it was actually quite difficult to get a hold of in our area it wasn't an easy item to find so they took matters into their own hands they trained as beekeepers and took on a hive and now i hardly have to take anything at all you know we have honey day in day out i have it in my tea, I have it in my coffee. We have it every single day, you know, at least a couple of times a day. And I'm sure it's it's helped me. Local honey, because it's not finely filtered, it still contains all the goodness of, um, you know, raw honey. And it has all local pollen in there as well. So if it's the local pollen from the trees and the flowers, which is causing your problem, 
then there's a possibility that it will help you. And it's, it's helped me. Salma and Khalil have experienced the many advantages that come with short, transparent supply chains. They're in total control of how their bees are cared for, and that influences the quality of their honey. In 2011, the bees became part of the community at the East London Mosque. At the time, we were actually looking for another site to to keep our bees. So we were looking for another apiary site. And we just thought, let's just ask. We didn't know what they would say. We, We didn't have any expectations. And it took them a little while to get back to us. They must have had some interesting but, conversations, I think, about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we found out afterwards they had a few committee meetings about it. And, um, you know, they were really for it. They were really pleased with the idea. They really liked the idea of having bees on the roof. I think a couple of the committee members really, really loved honey as well. So I think that helped. But they were very, very supportive from the word go. And that was in 2011. We had one colony there. And now on the roof, we have at the moment uh, eight, seven. We've got seven on the roof. And we have four in a purpose-built observation area as well. Because we've expanded so much now and we have so many hives and we get so much excess honey, you know, we came up with the idea that, okay, why don't you set up a business and, you know, try to sell some honey, make it available to the local community, you know, let them share in some of the goodness of local raw honey as well. Just as Salma and Khalil were launching their business, Bushwood Bees, the coronavirus crisis hit. Of course, in January, (laughs) nobody thought we were going to be where we are now. Nobody thought we're going to be in sort of a national lockdown or even international lockdown. At that time, as beekeepers, we had special dispensation. So we actually had, um, you know, official emails from government bodies saying, as beekeepers, you can and should go and look after your bees. It's wild stock. It's uh, it's animals at the end of the day that you're going to look after. It was actually quite a relief, to be honest. It was like, you know, when, when everyone else is stuck indoors, we're actually allowed to go out beekeeping. I mean, at the time, to be honest, in March, I don't think anybody expected the lockdown to last so long. I think at the beginning of COVID, like most people, we just thought it will probably last a few weeks and then everything will get back to normal. And uh, here we are six months later. <laughs> We've definitely had to make some very swift changes to the way that people pick up honey, for example. So it's been a sudden learning experience, I would say. You know. <laughs> We've had to learn how to do online sales yep. quite a lot. We've had to set up our online shop quite quickly. We'd have to arrange it so that people would collect bags of honey from the door. So we'd have to, mm. you know, okay, what time are you coming? We'll leave your bag at the doorstep. Which was odd because up until then, people loved to have a little chat on the doorstep and, you know, we loved to talk about where the honey came from and there were always lots of questions and this was quite, quite clinical. But at the same time, I think a lot of our local community and a lot of our newer customers that we gained actually appreciated the fact that we were trying our best and, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic, safety is obviously paramount and I think a lot of our customers did appreciate the fact that we were making the effort to make collection as safe as possible. But lockdown did have some benefits, not least for the bees. The one thing that we specifically noticed is uh, even in our local local area that every year Um, at certain time of the year and usually unfortunately at the wrong time of the year we'd get you know the local councils and people like that coming down and cutting the trees down 
So you know how they've got this thing about pollarding the trees at certain times of the years to keep them small? And usually they do that when the trees are at a stage where it's most beneficial to the insects. So they don't, unfortunately, take account of um, what the best time is for the pollinators out there. It's just what works for the schedule that we have. But this year, what's happened is because a lot of people haven't been able to get out and do the work that they need to. One positive part of that is a lot of the trees haven't been cut down. A lot of the grassland has have been allowed to grow wild and nature has flourished. You know, you're getting insects now, which you probably haven't seen in a long time, uh, which are coming back to certain parts of the country as well. So, you know, if you look at it from an insect point of view, it's actually been very good for them. The amount of nectar coming in, especially at the early part of the year, was significantly more than we would get in other in other years. You know, there's there's obviously um, other factors to take into account. You know, the year started off nice and warm. We had a good amount of rain. But even looking at similar years we've had in the past, it's actually been a really good year. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that, you know, because people haven't been out so much and they haven't been tearing down and making everything so nice and neat out there, it's actually been really good for the environment. I think we've had some... Uh far larger number of weeds out there which pollinators love and that's that's had a real benefit for the pollinators as well I've certainly noticed more butterflies far more different types of pollinators out there that you wouldn't normally see in your average summer because of lockdown people have been allowed to go out for one walk a day so they are really they were really taking advantage of that one walk a day so they were I think people were appreciating their green spaces a lot more. And I think when you appreciate your green space, you start to think about what you can do to help that green space. So I think people have consciously been planting more pollinator-friendly flowers, shrubs, trees, etc., as well. You know, something has changed for the benefit of the bees. For people running small food businesses like Sky and Jane, Angus and Salma and Khalil, the pandemic has presented huge challenges. They've adapted in inventive ways to keep their businesses afloat and continue serving their communities. But many people have faced a far more fundamental challenge, simply getting enough to eat. The pandemic has heightened an already urgent crisis in access to food. In Sheffield, one project sought to address this crisis by feeding people in multiple ways. Just a heads up, this interview includes brief references to suicide and abuse. My name is Ursula, Ursula Myrie, and I am the Managing Director for ADIRA, which is a survivor-led mental health and wellbeing service that supports Black people with mental health issues. We are a bridge between uh, the Black community and predominantly white um, mental health services. I set up a daira to become that kind of beacon in the black community where people could go for all those things, services that were culturally competent, sensitive and appropriate and led by people who look like them. People say, oh, mental health has increased because of COVID, nonsense. Mental health was there before COVID. Pain and trauma and, and death was there before COVID. COVID has just exasperated it. When COVID hit, a lot of people were losing the breadwinner. 
in the family and were really struggling and coming to me and saying, Ursula, I've got no food, I can't feed my kids. And I knew that I didn't even waste my breath saying or referring them to food banks because I knew <laughs> they would not go to a food bank. One, because the people there are all white and two, because the food is just not culturally appropriate for us. I've known white people who have said, look, you know, I'd rather die than go to a food bank simply because of the connotations attached to those two words, food bank, because food banks were started mainly to support people on very low income or on benefits. For black people, there is that sense of, because we have this statement in the black community about, you know, you've got to be this strong black man, you've got to be this strong black woman, maintain that image at any cost. Never let the white man see you needing help or, or wanting help and especially having to go to him for help. So to be seen there is an embarrassment. So Ursula coined the term food pharmacy. You know, when you have a child and, and the child is ill and they won't take the medicine, so you wrap it in a sweet and give it to them. <laughs> so that's where the word food farm, because I knew if I called it a food bank, no self-respecting black person would come. First part of it, what we did was we had cooked meals. So we had cooked chicken, rice and peas, uh, plantain, um, fried fish. The people who couldn't come out because they were shielding or self-isolating or were elderly knew that, okay, then the food that's going to be coming from the food pharmacy is food that I eat. Because even something as simple as that can really affect a person's mental health. You know, it's not a case of, oh, God, like, if you're that hungry, you'll just eat. No, it just doesn't work like that. And especially for our elderly, their body system is so used to a certain food. It's like suddenly giving a person who's been a vegan for 30 years meat you can mess up that person's system by doing something like that. So it's, it's just not that black and white. Even though the, the food pharmacy was for the black community, it was open to anybody, anybody who wanted, you know, food. And one of the cooked meals was for a Lithuanian family who had been referred to us. And they were so lovely, God, because they, they took the food, it was cooked and it was rice and peas and chicken and... and you know, the, the, the father called us and he said, look, you know, thank you so much for the food, but um, please don't deliver any more here because we just can't eat it. Um, we don't, my kids don't like the texture. They don't like the taste. They don't like the flavours. And I got so emotional because I completely understood, <laughs> absolutely completely understood why he and his family struggled with Jamaican food, you know, but... <laughs> I think for statutory services, it's just, this is what we've got, take it. Um, and if you don't, then you're not really struggling, then are you? Which is just not helpful. But as Ursula says, having access to culturally appropriate food is not a luxury. It's not about being fussy or ungrateful. Quite apart from the fact that being forced to suddenly radically change your diet is physically disruptive, it's mentally degrading as well. Culturally appropriate provision is about dignity. And it's about understanding that physical health, mental health and identity are intimately connected. In total, over that time period for during COVID, we fed over 4,000 people. That's just going on by individual food parcels. That didn't include because a diary became a feeder. The food pharmacy, sorry, became a feeder for other organisations. So for example, we fed two refuges and a halfway house for ex-offenders. 
that for me was my favorite part of running the food pharmacy because I was the one who initially reached out to the refuges because I used to be in a refuge 16 years ago and the refuge that I first reached out to was the one I was in 16 years ago and it was a refuge where I I was moved from London to Sheffield by police and social services and I basically had a breakdown and didn't want to live anymore and the staff sitting there for two hours trying to talk me down. I was in so much pain mentally and emotionally and psychologically I felt like an awful mother and I'd let my kids down and you know I lost everything and in that moment I couldn't see 16 minutes ahead. If somebody had said to me just you know focus on the next 16 minutes I couldn't I just was in the second in the second literally. So to be able to go back 16 years later and be able to feed women who are now there, <laughs> who are now in that refuge, who are now in that very, very dark place where I was 16 years ago. Oh, it just means so, so much to me. The thing that was beautiful was the first day I went there, some of the staff who were there 16 years ago are still there. So you can imagine the tears that day. <laughs> And what made it hard was that it was bloody Corona. So we couldn't hug or anything. And that was just like, no, because we just wanted to hug each other. I just wanted to hug those women because they saved my life 16 years ago. And to hear them say, you know, we know about Adira. We've heard about Adira. We've been following your progress since you left the refuge. We are so proud of you. We're so proud of what you've achieved. You survived suicide and abuse and all this. And you've not thought, well, okay, I've made it through. Off I go and live my best life. You've chosen to come back and get other women <laughs> who are now in that position and help them through what you went through. So, oh God, the tears that day. Oh, how we cried. <laughs> the first hall we were renting was one of my old churches. You know, black churches, everybody in the church can cook. <laughs> so when we, we put the call out and said, look, you know, we're planning to set up this food pharmacy and we need some cooks. Oh, there was no shortage. There was no shortage. What I love about the black communities, we teach our men and our boys to cook. So it wasn't just women in the kitchen. It was it was men as well that came and, and did the actual cooking. And that was all from the church. All the cooks were from that church. We'd have volunteer drivers who would come who were who were white. And they used to say, you know, coming there every Friday was like walking into a party. <laughs> Because, you know, we'd have our African music playing or our Jamaican music playing and the volunteers would be, young volunteers are all black, would be dancing. And, you know, we have such a laugh and it's genuine. It's not fake. It's not because we're trying to, no, it's genuine. You know, when I go there to collect the food, we are doing dance-offs. Um, <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And to see some of these white people dance, God help me. Oh, Jesus. And then when they're dancing with my volunteers, it's just like, no, 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 no. That <laughs> Please don't. Please stop. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just a real relationship that I, I build up with these people. So the food pharmacy in terms of being a success was absolutely brilliant and definitely needed for the black community. The food pharmacy was an amazing response to the immediate crisis. But as we'll hear later in the series, Ursula expects that many of those the pharmacy served will need ongoing support to access food. 
For the last decade, food bank use in the UK has risen every year. In 2019 to 2020, the Trussell Trust, an NGO that supports over half of the UK's estimated 2,000 food banks, they supplied 1.9 million emergency food parcels. That's 74% more than five years ago. This year, the situation has got dramatically worse. In April 2020, food banks reported their busiest month on record. So how can we ensure that everyone has access to food, and not just any food, nutritious and culturally appropriate food? This is a question we'll come back to throughout the series. The idea of dignity is something that's often absent from discussions about our food system. It feels like a distraction, maybe, an optional extra, a nice-to-have. But dignity has to be at the heart of our efforts to create a functioning, healthy, resilient food system. A system that really does serve everyone. That means the dignity of all the people in that system. The farmers, the farm workers, the chefs, the processors, and you and me, the people eating the food. And it means the dignity of the other beings in the system as well. The animals and the plants. As we'll hear throughout the series... Food is not just a question of calories. Food is nourishment for the body and soul. Food is about community, culture, and our relationship with each other and with the earth. We are all part of the food system. In the next episode of Who Feeds Us, we'll meet a dairy farmer in Northern Ireland, a halal butcher in Wales, and a fishmonger in Shetland. This episode of Who Feeds Us was produced by Susie McCarthy with executive producers Joe Barrett, Abby Rose and me, Katie Revel. The episode also featured an interview by producer Lovejeet Dhaliwal. Thank you to everyone we heard from. Col Gordon, Jane Scotter, Sky Gingell, Angus Buchanan-Smith, Salma and Khalil Atan and Ursula Myrie. The community collaborators for this episode were Cathy St. Germans and Zane Dada. The project manager for Who Feeds Us is Olivia Oldham. Our artwork is by Hannah Grace, and the original music for the series is by Michael O'Neill. Who Feeds Us is possible thanks to the Farming the Future COVID Response Fund. We're very grateful to the A-Team Foundation, the Roddick Foundation, 30 Percy, and the Samworth Foundation for providing the funds to make this project happen. Many thanks also to Farming the Future advisor Dee Woods for her guidance in bringing the team together.